Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, because we are sheltered in place in Indiana, we are each podcasting and recording from our homes, but we still will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our guest tonight for the third week in a row will be Dr. Paul Carson, infectious disease and public health expert from the University of North Dakota and North Dakota State University. I was just thinking, Tom, you probably got an advantage with the social distancing growing up in the UP. <laughs> Everybody is far apart in the Upper Peninsula <laughs> of Michigan, and uh, there have not been very many cases reported there as yet either. This has been a learning experience for me, and now we're doing this over the internet instead of in person. So it's good for hygiene, and it's an it's a opportunity to learn. Uh, speaking of hygiene, I have not washed my hands so many times in my life that my hands are palms are actually starting to peel. We're going to need some dermatology advice, I think, as well about how <laughs> to keep your hands healthy in the midst of all this washing. In, in order to try to serve our listeners and the broader Catholic audience, instead of just recording one episode weekly, we've been doing intermittent episodes during the week, one every day or two. So please go to our podcast uh, websites, uh, RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and you can find some episodes discussing with experts pediatric aspects of COVID, what pregnant patients need to know with our co-host, uh, Chris Stroud. Uh, what's the deal with nursing homes, hospitals, uh, the medical ethics of this, uh, epidemiology of that, uh, which uh, we did uh, the day before recording this one. Uh, we talked to a physician in Hong Kong who lived through the 2003 SARS uh, epidemic and is living through COVID now. And I have an interview planned in a couple of days with a critical care specialist who's taking care of COVID patients on ventilators. And actually, we're going to have Dr. Kevin Majors, our favorite psychiatrist here on anxiety, talking about dealing with the stress of a pandemic. Man, I've already seen that in the office of just so many people. You know, you get this information over the news media, which is often sensationalized. Yes. And it's hard to strike the balance between being adequately, you know, uh, appropriately cautious and not going overboard to where it's really impacting your life negatively. And that's what we want to do here. We don't want to be political. We don't want to be doom and gloom. We don't want to be sensationalistic. We want to present the best medicine, the best science within uh, the lens of our Catholic faith so that you can benefit from it. Because we realize the news cycle right now is 24-7 COVID. Yeah. So we are in a pandemic. And what is it that makes this a pandemic? There's really three things. Number one, we have a new germ, some new infection and that nobody has immunity to. The second thing is it can produce serious illness. We've seen that in the news. And finally, it can efficiently spread from person to person. And once that's going on, especially around the world like it is, this is the classic definition of a pandemic. And, it, and you know, I think for many of us, we feel like we've never seen anything like this before in our life. But I was surprised to learn, Tom, kind of with some of the, the show prep, that there's actually another ongoing pandemic right now. And what is that? That's the tuberculosis pandemic, right? It, it is. And it's been going on for a long time. It still kills over one and a half million people every year. Uh, so, and, and plus there's, you know, influenza around the world. And that's one thing we're going to compare and contrast because too many people have been saying, oh, this is so much less than influenza. Paul's going to set us straight on how to really talk about those two things in relationship to each other. So this brings us, I, I'm coming up with a practical medical trivia question today and one that I suspect many of you know the answer to. It's actually a two-part question. And that is simply, how long are we supposed to wash our hands with soap and water to protect ourselves from COVID each time we wash? And the second question, how long, if we don't use soap and water, are we supposed to rub with water-free alcohol-based cleansers? It's not precisely the same answer. At the end of the show, we'll have the answer 
But now we're going to take a break and come back with our special guest, Dr. Paul Carson, here on Dr. Doctor. We are back with our special guest for the third week in a row, Dr. Paul Carson, MD. He teaches in a Master's of Public Health program at North Dakota State University. He's an internist and infectious disease specialist. He's a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Health, and he is mired 24 hours waist deep into COVID. Paul, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back with you. <laughs> so, Paul... <laughs> What have you learned since our last update a week ago that you think is most important to share with listeners? Boy, there's, there's a lot of things. And <clears throat> I was on multiple calls and video conferences today with my colleagues, health department folks, um, several, uh, several kind of fast-moving changes. Um, the big issue for management that we're still butting up against is testing capability. And there are several bottlenecks for testing, but uh, hurdles are kind of getting knocked down one by one. Um, so one of the bottlenecks, uh, believe it or not, is just availability of swabs. So that the test uh, that we do, which uh, extracts RNA uh, from the virus and uses a special you know, tool to uh, measure that RNA, requires uh, us to do a nasopharyngeal swab. So it's a tiny little thin, you know, uh, swab that goes back to the very back of the nasopharynx. So it goes um, through your nostril all the way back. All the way back. You know, I don't know if you guys had to do this in medical school. We had to do this on each other. And yes, it's yes. Not fun. It's unpleasant, right? Very, yeah, it is unpleasant. It's, uh, uh, I think uh, Vice President Pence said, this is a mildly invasive procedure. Uh, <laughs> and, um, it, it turns out there's only like a couple of manufacturers of that nasopharyngeal swab. And if I'm trying to remember, right, I think one of them is in Lombardy, Italy. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. And uh, so that was a big problem. And uh, I think, uh, Andrew, you ran up against this where you, you had a highly uh, eligible person to be tested and you, you, you guys didn't have swabs, right? Precisely. And, and it's so interesting because the, the nurse that she was working on a COVID patient Two of her comrades who were in the same situation both tested positive, and we couldn't test her. Yeah, unbelievable. And, and yeah. so now we're talking to our lab, and they're, they're thinking of okaying even different types of swabs, yeah. ones that would not be ideal. Right. But, so, so the big change that's happened is that we were waiting to hear on this, that the Centers for Disease Control Laboratories were trying to validate that, that you don't necessarily have to get nasopharyngeal secretions to do this, which is like what we typically do for flu. They validated that just nasal, you don't have to get all the way back. You can just kind of go into the front or middle of the nose and oropharyngeal, just like we do with a strep throat. Um, those two kinds of swabs are good. You can measure, you, you, get, you get plenty adequate enough results with those. And so that opens up a whole nother set of swabs we can use. It also makes it easier for the healthcare providers to collect a specimen if you, you know, because those nasopharyngeal are a little bit um, not fun to do and, and not maybe as amenable to the, like what we're trying to do for drive-through testing, uh, you know, to, to do that in somebody in their car is not really easy, but a nasal one is just much easier. So that's really good news. That makes testing simpler and it opens up another set of types of swabs that we can use um, to hopefully free up that bottleneck. Then the next bottleneck is the different kinds of chemicals you use to extract the RNA and then the reagents or chemicals that you use to run the test to measure the RNA. And those are variable up and down depending on the day, depending on the state, depending on uh, what type of machine you're running it on. And uh, you know, I've learned that there's multiple different platforms or machines you can do this on. And they're all at different stages of being approved or ready to go. And so we're just scrambling, trying to get our testing capability ramped up. And we are just barely there. One of the things that I've been running into, and I, I wondered what your thoughts were on this, is the testing through the Department of Health of the state versus commercial labs. Right. Because the, the Department of Health, at least in Indiana here, very highly regulated and very limited. The commercial labs, it's almost like if you are lucky enough to have some leftover swabs, we'll go ahead and run them for you. Sure. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, so in our state, uh, I'm very active with our health department. We've been very interactive and in working to get criteria more loosened up and, and particular our priority ones like the healthcare providers. Here's the other thing talking about all this that I think is really an important change. 
is the restrictions on testing have been in part by criteria that you know, in the last 72 hours is now out of date. So to ask questions like, have you been to Europe? Have you traveled to China? Have you, you know, been to Seattle or whatever? Just don't matter anymore. I mean, where there's local transmission in pretty much every state, we should quit asking those questions. And we, we need to be testing by syndrome. You know, do you have a respiratory syndrome that's consistent with COVID? Now, we still might have to limit, limit the testing because there's a lot of people that, that, that it would be eligible for that, that we would love to test, but we have to still prioritize healthcare workers. We have to pr prioritize people who are living in congregate settings like you know nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Um, and we have to prioritize those that are particularly uh, at risk for progressing like the immunocompromised and the elderly. And then we have to prioritize people who are sicker. Um, and if we can get all of them tested and we shouldn't be asking them, you know, some really sick person or somebody who's 75 and has diabetes and heart disease, uh, you know, have you been to Europe? Uh, that just doesn't matter. Uh, now, if we can get all of them tested, then we can expand it to hopefully anybody who's got a respiratory syndrome consistent with COVID because that's our tool for doing the epidemiologic work, like finding their contacts and isolating people that are sick and quarantining people who are well but have been exposed. And we just, we're just not there yet. Are the I, I know locally we, we've had a couple wild cases in our county, but I know the number of tests that have been run and it's it's a handful, maybe a yeah. couple handfuls. But when you already have wild cases and you've only run a handful of tests, it's hard to even imagine how many hundreds, probably thousands of cases are already out there and we don't have any data on those at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sadly, I mean, I think this has really exposed the underbelly of our you know, just not adequately prepared public health infrastructure for a pandemic. We just, we just weren't there. And these countries that went through SARS, that really went through that, they saw what it was like. And maybe, maybe Dr. Strand on your other show, maybe address that. I mean, yes, they, did. They, they took it serious and they were ready. We weren't. So, Paul, you forwarded me a, a good, long, well-thought-out article from The Atlantic. Today's March 26, uh, saying that there are four things we need to do immediately to contain this the best we can. One of, this, one of these is produce more personal protective equipment, like, uh, like masks or respirators. Uh, produce and distribute more tests, which you just talked about. Practice social distancing which we'll talk about. And finally, have clear national coordination. So let's, let's address that. What do you think is the current state of national coordination for this? And then compare it with the way that state by state, they are deciding whether or not to go to more extreme social distancing, such as shelter in place. Yeah, it's, um, it, it is kind of interesting in that uh, you see different approaches uh, in, in each of the states kind of driven by often the, their public health leadership or their governor. To some extent, I think that's appropriate because the situations are different in each state. I mean, we just heard Andrew saying, you've got no tests where you're at. Um, we're kind of doing okay with that, or we're on the border of you know, being okay in North Dakota. Um, I think other places are uh, contending with lack of personal protective equipment. So each state, I think, needs to be nimble enough to uh, be able to use their budget towards what are their acute needs. Um, I think the governors are kind of at the, this is a little bit of the, you know, the Catholic social teaching idea of subsidiarity. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we need the federal level, the national level, they're the one that, they're the ones that make the testing materials that get distributed to the state health labs. I mean, if they can't get that together and and supply that to the states, uh, then we're, we're all struggling. But I think, you know, seeing some of the governor's approaches, you know, what's happening, for example, in New York is far different than what's happening in North Dakota. You know, they're in crisis mode and it's all hands on deck and their governor recognizes that and he's really advocating hard for a really, uh, you know, an emergency response and um, not sure where they're at with the shelter uh, in place. Uh, um, our, our governor next door in Minnesota is really close to that. And Minneapolis, I think, could be a hot spot really soon. So this is a, I think we have to be very nimble. What is your latest information from the incidence curves in different countries and our countries? How would you summarize that for our listeners? You know, that's something I look at 
every day and I didn't today because I just, I just had too much, too many things going on. But when I looked at them all yesterday, um, I was a bit hopeful. Uh, and maybe you guys can correct me if you saw anything change like in Italy or France or Germany or some of the European countries. But Italy looked like it was on the downhill slide for about three, four, five days. For the fourth day now. Fourth Agreed. day. And uh, Germany, same. I couldn't quite tell if, you know, France and uh, um, Spain were kind of at the inflection point. It looked like they might be flattening. Yes. Um, and that's okay. what they looked like, more flattening than going down. Yeah. yeah. But I think Italy was going down for four days, right? Yes. So what that tells me, you, know, you look at the countries who have been through it already, China, uh, Hong Kong, and you kind of look from at the beginning of when they were first starting to see their cases, uh, you know, really enough to be detectable to where they brought it like down to where they're like now talking about easing up maybe some restrictions. It was like four to maybe five, six weeks. And if that's the case, if we are successful, kind of like they have been same thing with Italy, it looks like they're kind of on about a, maybe a four week trajectory. They're into like their second or third week now, probably into their third week of where it really was on the upslope and now flattening and starting to come down. If that's the case, I think that means that for much of our country, that we might be feeling things on the, on the downhill slide by you know third to fourth week of April. That's what I hope. Uh, and I think that's possible. Um, so you don't think we'll peak by Easter? April 12th? Um, I think that's possible. Yeah, I think we could be peaking by Easter. Um, that might be a little early, um, but I think that's possible. We are, on, we are on the really steep part of the curve now, and you see what's happening in New York. But that, you know, most of the states are, are th I think, increasingly taking this seriously. Although I had an interesting conversation uh, early this morning with several of my friends in my uh, – we have a – Curcio group that meets and, you know, and, and uh, prays together and visits together. And we were talking about some of them who have high school kids and like the high school kids, they're home and they're saying, we're getting together with our friends. And oh um, no. Yeah. And they said, it's a problem. It's a, it's a real issue. And so I don't know how many other people are seeing that, you know, I see Hong Kong, which had controlled it from the beginning really well, um, is now having a uh, big spurt of cases there and they they kind of had opened up some nightclubs and some young people were kind of going out and um and they were re easing a little bit on the travel now they're back having cases should we, gets, yeah yeah go, should, go i guess that would be my question as as we peak and then flatten and then maybe even start going down and we loosen these stay in stay at home orders and whatnot is there going to be another peak another exponential rise and another peak or what yeah. do we expect there boy tough tough question and and you know the atlantic article that uh, tom referred to that i sent out actually i think the title of it you can correct me if i'm wrong tom but i think it was how does this end or what's yes. the end game or something yes. like that and there's a few scenarios of how this ends none of which are great um but some of which i think are tolerable so, you know, one scenario of how this ends is you just let it burn. And uh, you, you hear a few people kind of talking about that, that you just kind of let it go and who gets it, gets it. And maybe you try to let that happen with protecting the elderly and more vulnerable. I think most people in public health think that's not really possible, that you can't kind of let it sort of uh, go in one part of the population and protect uh, and really sequester another part of the population. But that gets you through the epidemic curve faster and it gets you to what ultimately we need, which is herd immunity, herd immunity preferably by a vaccine or herd immunity by we've just had so many people that have had it and they're now immune. And that's what happened with the Spanish flu, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, so it had to, you know, because the, the, the variant of this variants of sort of cousins of the Spanish flu that came after that have been circulating amongst us now ever since then. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't all succumb to that strain of the flu now we've sort of built immunity and tolerance uh, to, to that and there was no vaccine for that one no vaccine no so herd immunity is one way but it comes at a terrible cost uh, there will be hundreds to thousands to even millions of people who contract this uh, and a significant percentage of them are going to get very sick and we we certainly hear the reports of maybe uh, up to 40 somewhere between 40 to 50 percent of the people who are in the hospital in the u.s are in the 20, 30, 40 year old age group. Now, 
most of them are going to get through it and most of them are going to survive it. But it's not just a disease of the, the elderly. There's plenty, uh, there's plenty of uh, people in those younger age groups that, that contend with serious illness. So that's scenario number one. Scenario number two is what Andrew uh, just said, which is, you know, we, we bring it under control. We, our measures work. We settle it down and then we start to ease up and it bubbles back up again. And uh, I think most public health people think, uh, I, I'm not sure where they're at on this, you know, I don't like what a Dr. Anthony Fauci would say, but uh, you, could, you could imagine kind of like letting up and then putting them back down when it flares up and letting up is kind of whack-a-mole wherever it's yes. starting to kind of pop up and you, you just kind of play this balancing game. Um, and then the other scenario is that we just kind of, it's this full-on suppression mode until it extinguishes or we get a vaccine, but it, it comes at this tremendous societal cost of grinding everything to a halt, which uh, how tenable is that? And Tony Fauci said that there are unintended consequences of prolonging the social isolation too long. For instance, I wonder, there are so many people in the country not getting medical care that they need right now for things that are not COVID. Uh, what it, Andrew just told me that a local pediatrician, they're down 95%. We're down 90% in the number of patients we're able to see. Uh, the dentists, I mean, they're down almost 100%. Right. So and I, I want to tell people that COVID might kill you, but your A1C of 14 is definitely going to kill you if we don't treat it. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you're not going for your regular diabetes care, you're not going for your regular, you know, oral health care, you're not going for your, you know, regular follow-ups for your hypertension, your heart disease, et cetera, there's going to come a cost with that uh, at some point. And then I also kind of wonder about the, the mental health cost, like this just sort of constant state of anxiety. <laughs> I mean, I'm experiencing it, uh, you know, this sort of constant, uh, uh, state of anxiety and, and flares of true anxiety disorder, depression, and you know what physical comorbidities will come from that. Uh, Actually, that's going to be tomorrow. We're doing a special episode with psychiatrist Kevin Majors, who we've had on about anxiety. So that's you know, what he's going to talk about. Yeah. So I mean, we're we're going to have to, you know, uh, President Trump said, you know, we don't want the the uh, cure to be, you know, worse than the the disease. I think he's a little too optimistic about oh, we'll have this, you know, okay yes. and ready to kind of start yes. back up, you know, by, by, by Easter, I think we're going to be still battling this hard by then. But, um, but there is something to that, that we, we can't make the, the cure worse than the disease. Um, but we're already hearing, I, I'm, I'm curious about what you've heard from colleagues around the country. I mean, our ICUs are, we've got now several people in our, in the little state of North Dakota, we've got several people in the ICU here now uh, with COVID. In one of our uh, local hospitals, where uh, actually tomorrow I'm or Saturday I'm going to be interviewing the critical care chief in one of our hospitals. As of yesterday, they had two patients with COVID on ventilators, and they had at least fifty other ventilators available. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think about the way our hospital systems typically run in the United States. They are they have designed themselves and. And the business model has made itself to run at kind of full capacity. Yes. I mean, our, our ICUs are always, you know, at full capacity, you know, you, you kind of max out your staff. We're not made to handle a big surge. Uh, no. This is, this is going to be a real um, logistical challenge for all of us. I want to ask a question that a listener wrote in today before we take our break. And that is, we talk about flattening the curve. And he was asking the question about the area under the curve, which really represents patients who get sick. Yeah. So by flattening the curve, are we decreasing the total number of cases or just uh, preventing the healthcare system from being overwhelmed? That's a good, that's a great question. I think the, the, honest answer to that is that it may be both, but it's probably more trying to protect the healthcare system from an untenable surge. Okay. Be because you're not changing the total susceptible population. That remains, you know, if we space everybody out and we, we do all the social distancing, we decrease the numbers of transmission, but, but you still got the same number of people who are susceptible out there once they start circulating again. That doesn't change. It, it may by time that you have enough people that go uninfected to where a real vaccine or an, a, an effective drug comes along so that they might not really experience anything bad from, from this. But 
it's the, 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 I think the realistic answer is, is that it doesn't diminish the total numbers. It just stretches them way out over time. And there was one other probably short answer listener question. There were two of them. And this one is, in developing a vaccine, we as Catholics don't want to use any aborted cell lines. Is there a way to um, ask uh, for companies not to do that? And what is the likelihood that those kind of cell lines would be used to develop a vaccine? It's uh, a good question. Um, I, I don't know enough about the, you know, sort of benchwork cell biology of this virus uh, to answer that. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a, a good number of cell lines that can be used. And I know of uh, some companies, uh, like I, I had a lunch with the uh, uh, vice president of scientific affairs for the vaccine division of um, GlaxoSmithKline, who, and he told me that they've made a commitment not to use those cell lines from aborted fetal cells for any of their future vaccines. Wow. Um, so I, I, I wanted to see that verified in an actual policy statement, which I haven't, but I, I think it was a pretty reliable source. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I just think that's very praiseworthy that, you know, one company's made a decision like that. And uh, I, I, to be honest, uh, Tom, I don't know the answer to that okay. for sure. I, I, would, I would hope that, really hope Well, that we're going to take a break now and be back with more on, of uh, COVID with Dr. Paul Carson after the break here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Paul Carson on COVID. Paul, you told me this morning that if you had a do-over and could hit a reset button, you might say some things differently two or three weeks ago about COVID than you would now. Do you want to do your mea culpas and your humility check here on air? Uh, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I, <laughs> I have learned from this uh, that I think those of us who are quotes, you know, experts on this really need to approach this with a big dose of humility because none of us have been here before. We're trying to make projections and predictions with data that we have, but the truth of the matter is there's just so many variables that we don't know. Um, I think in an effort to kind of be optimistic and hopeful at the beginning of all of this, I, and I saw a number of my colleagues kind of saying, you know, doing comparisons to influenza and, you know, saying, well, you know, flu kills so much more people and, and does, you know, uh, um, so much more than we've seen so far with COVID. And I, I have evolved on this to think that was, um, I wish I could kind of take some of that back. Uh, we can go into that a bit more. I, uh, I, kind of at the beginning was, you know, saying things like, let's just stage our approach to, you know, the, the big events and the schools and the, like, we, we can be a little bit patient with this. I think, I wish I could take that back. I, I think if we could have been more aggressive, especially in the bigger urban centers, right from the beginning, they might not be like New York might not be as in dire straits it is, is now if they really had been aggressive ahead of the curve. Um, yeah, it's been a, a deep learning uh, deep and steep learning curve for me on this. Why is Both. influenza an unfair thing to compare COVID to? So I, it's, it's, there's some things that I think are helpful about that uh, comparison and, and some that we've got to put qualifiers around. They're both respiratory droplet spread diseases. Uh, they, they have, they're maybe close to the same um, contagiousness. I think another mea culpa for me is I was like, I think it's a lot less contagious than influenza. And I gave some reasons why I thought that was. Yes. I don't really know how contagious it is in comparison. And we won't know until we have uh, what we call uh, antibody tests that can tell us how many people got really infected ah. with this. We just don't know how many people are walking around with minimally to, to no symptoms, but have it. And so we don't, we don't know how infectious it is. You know, I, I like I said, I made some guesses from some of the data before, but the the comparison with influenza that I brought up, many experts brought up, and that you hear all the time is, look, you know, we have um, millions, tens of millions uh, of cases of influenza each year in the United States, and uh, we we have in the neighborhood of you know hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations, and uh, oftentimes tens of thousands of deaths. We talk about the average being somewhere around. Uh, anywhere between like 15 to 45,000 deaths from influenza a year. 
and and I don't know where we're at as of today. I think yesterday uh, we were probably something like around we're probably around fifteen thousand deaths from COVID uh, in the world. Is that uh, do you guys know offhand? I think that's. I, I think it might even be more like twenty some. Okay. Twenties. So it's it's getting up there, but take you know what's reported by the CDC for influenza deaths in a bad year, which was two years ago. Uh, he said 51,000 deaths. Okay. Yeah, it's 24,000 as of now on uh, Worldometers, Paul. Okay, 24,000 deaths in the world compared to what the CDC said was 51,000 deaths just in the U.S. Uh, two years ago. Here's why I think we, we got to quit doing that comparison. When the CDC measures influenza deaths, they use a formula. It's not actually like um, we've got, influenza listed on the death certificate or it was a known diagnosis they do a mathematical model based on how many tests you know were were done and how many positives were done and then people who died during that period of time from things like pneumonia and heart attacks and uh, other cardiovascular events they make a presumption that a certain percentage of those were because of influenza aggravating that problem because, you know, as you and I talked uh, offline, we, we've worked all the time in the hospitals. We don't see ICUs full of people dying of influenza. I mean, I've never seen that. Um, we may have a lot of flu cases in the hospital, but we don't have our hospital ever overrun by, oh, my goodness, there's so many uh, influenza people who are struggling to survive. That, and we're so, not running out of ventilators for them. And we're not running out of ventilators because it's, you know, a really bad flu season. Um, we may have a lot of cases that, that we'll, we'll talk about, but th there's several differences. Uh, as I said, it's not apples to apples on how we compare mortality. It's a formula that, that extrapolates and, and presumes influenza is contributing to a bunch of these other causes of death. The deaths that are listed from COVID, that's for sure what uh, killed them. And, and it's, it was, it was direct, directly because of respiratory failure from that. The other big difference is we kind of know what's going to happen with each flu year. We know it's going to end in the summer. We know that we've got drugs that we can treat it. We know the vaccine's going to kind of tamp it down uh, to some extent. None of that is uh, out there with COVID. It's, uh, um, we don't know uh, how far and how deep this goes. We don't know if the summer is going to bring us a relief. We, we think it will. We hope it will, um, but we don't know that for sure. And we don't know uh, if it'll just all start right back up again in the fall or winter. So, um, th that's why uh, we, we need to take it seriously and we need to be doing the measures that have been recommended. Uh, Paul, when is the next time that you would attend a conference in another city? <laughs> I'm scheduled to go to one in May um, and I'm doubtful that I'm going to go to that. Um, I would consider something this summer if I saw us way down and, uh, and, and cases were really pretty well controlled. Summer, think, July, or August? June, July, August. Uh, I, I think there's a decent chance we will be on the downhill side of this, uh, as I think I mentioned in the first half, maybe by uh, late April. And I think if we kind of saw things cooled off all of May, I would consider kind of getting back out there and traveling and doing some things uh, in June, July, August. That, oh. that's, that's presuming that the summer contributes to keeping it in control. Paul, one of the things that they've done uh, where we live here in Indiana is that they've done a stay-at-home order where mm -hmm. only essential businesses are functioning. Um, and when I, I went today to the office to an essential business, the, the commute looked about the same to me. Um, and my neighbor's having his roof redone. And there's about 20 people up on top of his roof. So to what extent do you think this actually works is this something we should continue encouraging? And uh, I guess we're, one of the questions we ask you each week when we talk, when do we get to go to church again? Any change in your perspective on all that? No, I think we need to be doing this. I think we need to take it seriously. I, I think we can see already what's happening in New York City is something we do not want repeated in any of our major cities anywhere else. And if we can be ahead of that curve that they faced by taking the measure seriously now so that you don't overwhelm healthcare systems, um, we need to do it. And uh, yeah, I've, I saw, I, I can't remember if it was on Facebook or some other social 
media type website of memes about look at this social distancing and it's like cities all over the u.s where people are like hanging outside you know hanging out outside starbucks or you know this uh, congregating in all kinds of different settings and um and i i think that's worrisome i i do think that's worrisome and you oh. know i i was thinking you asked the question about when do we get to go back to church uh you know we i I did my first streaming mass, you know, this Sunday with our Bishop did the mass and it, he, it was really beautiful. He did a good job, but we all, my whole family was almost, you know, a little bit tearful about like what this was like. And, um, uh, and to think about like maybe not being able to go to mass at Easter, which I think is, you know, kind of probable uh, yes. here is, is I think for a lot of us, I think a lot of us would say, I'll take the risk. Maybe, you know, I, I, I want, yeah. I want to, I want to, you know, I'm, these, there's other things that are more important than my life, but then it's, you're also take making that decision for everyone around you, you know, uh, and uh, that's not something we bear alone. It's not just me. It's back to solidarity, like yeah. uh, your moral duty to vaccinate. We have a moral duty to socially distance. I think we do. Andrew, you brought up something that a local hospital sent you today. Yeah, I, I wanted to get your thoughts, Paul. I know you've reviewed all the data about potential drugs to treat COVID and some of the things that we've seen on the news that sounded really promising when I saw the headlines with hydroxychloroquine and even azithromycin. Um, our local hospital said that they're only using them kind of in extreme cases and that the data might not be as good as everybody else was saying in the news. What, what do you think? So I've, I think I've read every study on this, um, and there's not many. Uh, and we've, we've had a vigorous discussion with a group of infectious disease physicians in our health system, as well as our uh, infectious disease pharmacists. And we've actually come up with a protocol for how we're going to use these in the hospital. So here's what we know. <clears throat> uh, we know that in the test tube, when you expose uh, cells to uh, coronavirus in the presence of uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, it suppresses the ability of that virus to infect those cells. And it suppresses it at concentrations that are quite achievable with the typical dosing of these drugs that we do. So that's first. Uh, test tube cell culture data showing you can inhibit the virus from growing in those cells. Uh, second uh, study that really kind of matters with this was a study of about 100 patients out of China. Uh, where the report, uh, this gets to some of my uh, um, amazement at how fast science, uh, scientific literature is being published and my chagrin with how poor some of it is. So, I mean, there's just stuff published now just fast and furious, but some of it's just really not very good quality. So this was a study published out of China of about 100 patients. And basically what the study said was, we gave them uh, uh, chloroquine and they did better. <laughs> yeah, that's like all it says. They didn't give, they didn't say like, did how many survived, how many got out of the hospital sooner, you know, how did they do better? Did, what was the comparison group? I mean, it was just, it was, it would never make a peer reviewed journal ever, but okay, that's one more thing, you know, a bunch of uh, Chinese patients uh, with the, these doctors trying to kind of get out information out quickly said, we gave it to them and they did better. The third study that I think is the most interesting uh, to most of us was um, a non-randomized study. So they took people who got either hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin or neither. Uh, so three groups and uh, they were not randomized. So you always have the potential there for some selection bias, like who who, uh, you know, who gets the drug? Well, probably sicker people got the drug and, you know, you're not comparing necessarily apples to apples in those, but it's still, uh, you know, compelling to look at. And what they found was uh, they took nasal swabs from all of these patients and looked at how much virus was there. And by day three and by day six, well, first of all, by day three, if you were on hydroxychloroquine, you dropped the amount of virus in your nasal secretions by, I think it was almost half. And if you were on both drugs, you dropped it by like 60, 70%. And by day six, um, you were, you know, below half of the people had detectable virus with hydroxychloroquine and almost no one had detectable virus uh, with the two drugs. So that, 
that was so compelling that if I had the disease, I would want it. We interviewed Bill Williams, who's a medical researcher, rheumatologist. He said he would definitely take it if he had mild or moderate disease. I, I, think, I, uh, I think I would too. But here's the other caveat here, and I, I want listeners to really pay attention to this because I think, you know, President Trump said this is a game changer and got kind of everybody excited, and and maybe it is, but there isn't that much hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine produced in the world. It's it's not a commonly used drug. We, we it's it's useful for like a, a fraction of malaria cases, and it's used in some rheumatologic diseases. So um, we kind of did some of the math in our own state. We've got maybe enough around for. Uh, maybe two, 3,000 courses of it. Um, we predict if there's a 20% attack rate and the surge that we think that could come, that, that's like not anywhere near enough, not anywhere near. So we, we want it saved for hospitalized patients. That's what we want it saved Good for. Good perspective. I, I wonder if that's gonna be the next kind of area of shortage. We've had the mask issue and the testing issue. I've had patients calling up just requesting a prescription for hydroxychloroquine before they get symptomatic. Oh, yeah. And we, and, we I, need... and I said, we cannot do that at all. But I wonder, I bet you there's a lot of people out there kind of stockpiling that. They, they are at the American, um, uh, whatever, the, the American Pharmacy Association. I, I'm not sure what the professional society is. It's, it's the Professional Association of Pharmacists. Um, and I think it was the American Board of Internal Medicine. And there was like three groups that sent out a letter today saying, please be ethical about the way we use this. We cannot be um, having doctors or other providers prescribing it for family members or friends to kind of stockpile and have on the ready in case they get sick um, or for themselves. Um, and, and really, we sh I think we should be trying to preserve that for people who are the sickest in the hospital. Now, there's one other really important thing about this. Um, these two drugs uh, alone um, do something that we call prolong the QT interval. So it's like uh, uh, it's a the electrical function of heart muscle cells. Yes. That if you um, if you make a certain way that the electrical activity happens in the heart uh, change, it can increase the, significantly the risk for serious arrhythmias, fatal arrhythmias. And both of these drugs do that. Um, to some extent individually and together the potential that for them to do it together is even greater so we had Taking these drugs especially both of them together needs to be done in a probably uh, I think in um, A very controlled environment preferably the hospital so you can make sure that that's done safely and Paul, then, I, I learned that the Plaquenil probably prevents the virus from attaching to and getting into the cell right. But what does the azithromycin do? No idea like there's like we have no plausible explanation for why that should have antiviral activity, um, and and I don't know how they even kind of thought to look at it. I think a lot of people are probably getting that drug for worried about secondary bacterial pneumonia, sure. maybe, and so they got that and kind of found that maybe the effect was even greater. Because uh, azithromycin so for our listeners is an antibiotic for bacteria, not viruses, and then Plaquenil is anti-malaria medicine and also has anti-inflammatory capabilities for certain types of arthritis and, and lupus and other connective tissue diseases. Yeah, and azithromycin also has some anti-inflammatory properties. A yes. lot of listeners probably know azithromycin by its more common name, the ZPAC. You right. know, like everybody in the world seems to have been on a ZPAC at some point in their well, life. And this is making me think, Paul, while we're talking, I have a lot of patients come in and when they need an antibiotic, they request a ZPAC. Yes. Would it, would it be prudent for providers uh, to, to try and steer them some other way to preserve that if we end up using it more in the ICU? Yes, 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 yes. And in fact, in a, my other role, uh, which is about antibiotic stewardship and using antibiotics judiciously, the ZPAC or azithromycin actually is not a very good drug for the vast majority of things it's given for, which is respiratory tract infections. It's it's not a great choice. Um, it's not recommend. It's not doesn't even. It's not recommended by any professional society for sinusitis, but it's very frequently used for that. Um, it is approved as a second line drug for ear infections and throat infections, but it's a second line drug. It's not as good as just penicillin for throat infections and amoxicillin for ear infections. It's not as good. How about bronchitis, um, Paul? And bronchitis is like the biggest bugaboo of all because in in people who have uh, who are are otherwise healthy and have acute bronchitis. So 
I'm an otherwise healthy person. I don't have chronic lung disease, but I tend to cough. You know, I got a virus infection. And I'm coughing up green goobers or whatever. <laughs> That's almost always a virus. There's a plethora of studies that show antibiotics do nothing. They do nothing. Uh, we should not be giving antibiotics. That's the most frequently overprescribed area for antibiotics. Um, if you got a cough from a, you know, a virus or whatever, actually, if you got a cough now, we want to worry about COVID, um, you know, and, and maybe uh, get you tested for that. But um, azithromycin is not uh, something you need. And yes, Andrew, I think we should be saving that as a potential concomitant therapy in our hospitalized patients. Because it, it will, will run up short on that too, I have no doubt. And based on what you just said, Paul, about a cough, be worried about COVID, there is nothing that you can see in a patient that will tell you, yep, this is probably COVID and not something else. I have been searching low and high to, find, to, to try and ferret out some clinical criteria that could help us say, yep, this is more likely COVID and you should be tested. And nope, you know, and like I would really love to be able to tell everybody sore throat and sniffles. Uh, you know, not COVID. I, we, I don't think we can say that yet. We're actually going to work on the data that we have in North Dakota. I just getting my hands on it today to see if we can say that almost everybody has a cough or most everybody has a, um, you know, a feeling of fever or something. I, I don't know that we're going to be able to get that. I think any respiratory tract symptoms are fair game right now. Hey, Paul, I've got a question that I have to decide by tomorrow. Okay. Ooh. We have a limited number of, of tests with the e-swabs that we have that they've now allowed. Um, when someone calls in and they are sick and they have symptoms that could be COVID, would they be better served coming in and having a good physical exam or trying to do it over telemedicine, which I've learned to do in the last week and I'm doing a lot of now? What should yeah. I do? So I think uh, preferentially we should be doing as much as possible by telemedicine or telehealth um, because we want to even in our, I mean, sadly and challengingly, we want to practice social distancing in our clinical setting, right? We don't want a parade of patients mixing with healthcare workers, any of whom might be in the early stages of COVID and passing it on to, to the next person. So as much as can be done in that telemedicine or telehealth, I think is a good idea right now when we're in that steep part of the curve going up with lots of transmission going on around. Um, I think some of those people are going to have to be brought in though. I mean, you're going to find people that are sicker or have more problems and be brought in. I'm, I'm a bit encouraged that we might actually be able to do testing by telemedicine because now with the new CDC guidance saying that you could maybe even do self swapping, you could imagine dropping off a kit getting on the camera with, you know, your patient and saying, all right, here's, all right, I want you to put the swab there. I want you to get in your, no, I need you to go a little further back, you know, swab it around really good. Okay. Now put it back in that. Yeah. Just like that. And then put it in the box. And, and then, you know, I mean, that's possible now that we could even be doing testing, sort of uh, coaching somebody through a self uh, self uh, swab and then, you know, mailing the thing in. Paul, uh, we've got just over a minute left. I'd like you in your last comment to, Respond to this statement made in 2007 by the Secretary of Health and Human Services when he said that everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist, everything we do after a pandemic will seem inadequate. What was that guy prescient? Um, uh, I, think, uh, I, I think the other way of saying this, too, is um, the way Dr. Anthony Fauci said it is, I, I'd much rather be criticized for having done too much than, uh, than being criticized after the fact that we were we we woefully under uh, did what we needed to do and then suffered the consequences. I think hopefully we will learn a really difficult lesson from this that we uh, will be better prepared for the next pandemic that comes. Paul Carson, thank you again for being with us on Doctor Doctor. You are a treasure trove of wisdom. God bless you. Thanks thank for having you me, guys. Yeah, good to talk to you. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical and pertinent, very pertinent trivia question today. So how long are we supposed to wash our hands with soap and water to protect ourselves from COVID? Do you have an easy way to remember this, Andrew? Yes, I do. The answer is you do it forever, even when there's no COVID. <laughs> no, but I mean each time you wash your hands. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you had a very good example that you have in kind of our preparatory documents here. Yep. 
it's about the time it takes to pray an Our Father at a typical speaking pace, 20 seconds. That's actually what I learned in medical school at Mayo Medical School my first month. An infectious disease nurse came in and said to wash your hands for about as long as it takes to pray in Our Father. It's the most Catholic thing I learned in all of my medical school, school career at Mayo Clinic. See, I really like that. Somebody else said the Salve Regina, and I'm like, man, the way I chant, that would take a long time. That was the Hong Kong doctor, yes. <laughs> and then the second question is, how long are you supposed to use alcohol-based cleanser, uh, which is what I do most of the time during the day? And the answer to that is not a time. It's until a certain endpoint happens, and that is when it's all dry on your hands. Okay, which usually does take about 20, but sometimes 30 seconds in my case. And I am doing it over 100 times a day right now. What should we do to keep our hands moist instead of dried out, Tom? I like using moisturizers that have ammonium lactate in them, like lachydrin or amlactin, or just generic ammonium lactate. Uh, okay, so make sure helpful. you moisturize after all. I think I was calculating one day, I think I'll, it's probably over 80 to 100 times a day I wash my hands. I don't doubt it. So, so you've got to moisturize. You've finished another show with your two clean-handed doctors here. Thanks for listening to another episode <laughs> of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, usually brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of these and our intermittent podcasts with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or on RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And please send us your questions and tell us something, how you heard something on Dr. Doctor, how it changed your life. Let us know which in-between episodes were your favorite and anything you'd like us to include in the future. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.